Father, we lift up the families in Las Vegas, and we know there's many others in the world that, that we could include in this prayer, and we do. Lord, we can't understand what happened. The only thing we can do to make sense of it is evil. And it, it does remind us how, how much we need you and how wonderful you are. Lord, we plead with you, we beg you, that you would be merciful to our world. Um, people doing horrible things, Lord. Please, uh, please continue to demonstrate patience. And then, Lord, do what you do best. You're the expert at drawing hearts to you. Lord, draw these hearts to you. All these families that have lost loved ones and have uh, friends and family who are injured, who haven't died, Lord, they're all, so many of them are just don't know how to make sense of it. We don't know how to make sense of it. So we pray that you would be merciful to them and that you would show them who you truly are and your love. Thank you for that. Bless us today, Lord, as we, as we look at a topic on the road to victory, one that's hard for us to get our minds around, but yet it's important. In your son's name we pray, amen. Well, we're in a series, um, Road to Victory, and this time we decided to step back on this side of victory and look at some of the pitfalls, if you will, some of the neglected pieces of the journey. It's easy for us to overlook. And today I want to talk about simplicity. Simplicity in church history has, for 2,000 years, has been defined largely in terms of our material possessions. But as you're going to see today, that's actually the core of a much bigger area, our spiritual life, is how we handle our possessions. And uh, you can always tell uh, where a person's level of maturity and spirituality is by what they do with their possessions. And so we want to take some time today and explore that. Um, but first, a test. You know, I like to teach. I've been teaching lots of classes at Denver Seminary over the years, and so I'm going to give you an exam, okay? And you, uh, you get to see if you pass or fail. We use the word tithe in church. We, we tithe, we do those sorts of things. And uh, I don't know how many of you know what an actual tithe is. A tithe is a word that occurs in the Old Testament. It does not occur in the New. It occurs in the Old Testament, and it really just means a tenth. And so the Jewish people were expected to give a tithe every year. So we kind of use that as a soft benchmark of how we're doing. By the way, do you know what the average giving in the United States is in the church today? It's less than 2%. Okay? So let me explain what a tithe actually is, and then you can tell me if you pass or fail, and if you want to continue to use this as a standard. Okay? All right. So you take all the money that you earn, and you give 10% of it. So let's just say $50,000, you earn $50,000. How much do you have to give every year? How much? 5000 Okay, so you have to give 5000 But you had to actually give two tithes a year. So how much is that? 10000 Okay. I could ask for a show of hands how many of you give that out of your 50000 But I'll, I'll wait a little bit. I'm going to give you a little bit more of the test. Well, then you had to calculate all the value of all of your assets. Everything. So let's say that your assets are worth 500000 What's 10% of that? How much? 50,000, now we're up to 60,000 every year. It's actually 50,000 times two, because you give two tithes a year, 100,000 plus two $5,000 tithes, which is 10,000, that's 110,000 a year. Every third year, you have to give a third tithe. Okay, how many of you give that much? What? 
What? You all fail. You failed the test. How many of you want to continue to use that as a standard? In the New Testament, it gets worse. (laughs) I'm going to read you a passage. Out of 2 Corinthians, it doesn't actually get worse. It gets significantly better. This is a passage many of you have heard before, 2 Corinthians 9. It's in a section where Paul is talking about uh, the Corinthians' willingness to give a, a donation for people that are poor around different parts of the world. In the middle of this, he has a little section on generosity, which really is going to move us into the New Testament. And then when we look at this, we're going to go back and look in the Old Testament because I want you to see that this was actually God's vision all along. Now, here's what I don't want to do. I'm not interested in creating guilt. That's not my style. You know that. I'm not interested in doing that. What I'm interested in doing is producing gratitude. And uh, when we get to the end of this morning, I'm going to read a letter by uh, Warren Buffett on his approach to giving, which might surprise some of you. And um, so this is not a guilt sermon. This is a sermon to help you explore the theology of how important what we do with our money, how it relates to our souls, because it is inextricably connected to it. So here's 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Remember this. Now, whenever Paul starts out with those words, it's usually good to pause and think about what he just said. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Now, I'm not a farmer. I don't think I could grow anything if I tried. I, wouldn't know how, I grew up on the beach. I'm a beach bum. Okay, give me a Frisbee or a joint, and I'm comfortable. But... <laughs> I don't know anything about planting. Did I just say that out loud? No. <laughs> I don't know anything about planting stuff. But it makes sense to me that if you plant a few seeds, you get a few plants. And if you plant a lot of seeds, you get a lot of plants. That makes sense. So he's using an agricultural metaphor that they understood because this is their world. So whoever sows sparingly shall reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Do you believe that? Let's just pause. Do you actually believe it? Man, we read so many promises in scriptures that we just overlook. We fly right over. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Test number two. How many of you just love to give? How many of you just, I see a few hands go up. You just, I love giving. Every now and then, Nancy and I kind of have a little tussle in our marriage where this has happened more than once, where I come home and I say, I just gave X amount of dollars to so-and-so. And she goes, oh, I just gave X amount of dollars to so-and-so. Well, praise God, we put the money in the bank because sometimes it comes together. We love giving. God loves a cheerful giver. That's test number two. Okay, now what we're going to find is that this was actually God's intent all along. The Jews did something with it they shouldn't have done. He loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly. Okay, now, let me pause. This is going to sound like um, faith formula theology, prosperity gospel. It's not. I am convinced that is one of the heresies in today's church because they stop one step short. Okay, so follow Paul's thinking here. Each of you should give what you... Oh, God loves a cheerful giver. I just read that. God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need... There's one level. 
having all that you need, you will abound. Now there's a level above that. In every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, that's God supplying our needs, will also supply that and multiply your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. Think about what he just said. This is where we get the idea that you cannot outgive God. It is impossible. And we're beginning to learn right through here that we have a God who loves to bless. Do you believe that? But he drew a line, didn't he? So one of the questions we're going to raise all morning is, when is enough enough? I can't answer that question for you. You have to answer it. When is enough enough? Nancy and I, when our last kid graduated from college and got married, all four are married and are out of the home, <sighs> those big checks stopped. And we realized there was our line. We have enough. Everything above that is now a blessing from the Lord. Why? So next verse. You will be enriched in every way so that you can buy new boats, which I did. New cars, bigger houses. Oh, no, wait, that's not in here. Listen to what he says. You will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This is where we come up with the principle, God blesses you so that you can bless others. One of the tragic mistakes we're making in our, in our country today is to confuse people regarding the difference between wealth and greed. There's a huge difference. Wealth is a statement of the Lord's blessing. Greed is a statement of the heart. We need wealthy Christians. Let me be clear. We need wealthy Christians. I love it that we have wealthy Christians. Because you make it possible for me to do what I do. One of my professors in seminary said, if you're in the ministry for the money, you haven't got the intellectual qualifications. If you talk to any of the people on our staff, we're not in this to get rich. We're not. We're in it because we love doing it. We love doing what we do. You could do what we do. You could do what Mark and I do. You could go to seminary. You could study. You could wrestle through these thorny passages and all these fun things. But that's not the way God wired you. God wired you to go do what you do in life. You reflect his glory to a broken world by being you. So whatever your job is, that's how you reflect God's glory. How does a tree reflect God's glory? By being a tree. That's how. So when the scriptures talk about the flowers and the sun and the moon and all those reflecting, they're praising God, how do they do that? They do that by being who they are. And so you get to be who you are and then you pay us to do this work and make it easy for you so you enjoy it, to bring life, if you will, into our congregation. And we love it. So let me just say on behalf of our staff, thank you. Let me start with that. Thank you. And I try to say that often to you, don't I? Thanks for making it possible to do this. Because it results in thanksgiving to God. We thank God for that. Okay, but... 
there's much deeper stuff in here than simply how much you give. If we keep the conversation limited only to our material possessions, we're missing a very core element. So I'm going to go back to Malachi. The book of Malachi is the last book in the canonical Old Testament. Um, it's not the last book written. I believe uh, Ezra and Nehemiah were written after this, but it's written toward the very end. So here's the story. The Jews have already uh, disobeyed God all the way to the point. The northern kingdom is now gone. The southern kingdom is on its, uh, it, it disobeyed God, and he said, okay, uh, that's it. I'm kicking you out of the land. That was what he promised in Deuteronomy 28. If you disobey me, I'm going to curse you and kick you out of the land. So he did that. So they're gone now. They've been deported. So they've been out for a number of years, and now God brings them back into the land. Okay? Under the Persian Empire, they were allowed to come back. So a bunch of the poor people came back. They're living back in the city now, in Israel and in the city of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the wall, and they're rebuilding the temple. We call that in scholarship the second temple period because the first temple was Solomon's temple. They destroyed it. Now it's the second temple, and they're rebuilding it. Okay, God's glory hasn't yet come back. They're back, but his glory is not back. They're not able to offer animal sacrifices, so they realized that the that God bringing them back from exile has not been completed yet. So these few books written when they come back are very important because God begins to lay down a new way of thinking that prepares for Christ 400 years later. So what he says after the exile in these few books is very important. And what he and this is an important thing related to what we're talking about. I'm going to jump into uh, Malachi chapter 3. He's talking about injustice. You see, all of the prophets, every single one without exception, criticized the leaders of Israel because they were unjust. They didn't take care of the poor. They didn't take care of widows. In fact, when we get to uh, uh, Acts, Acts 3 and 4, Peter and John are in the temple, and they see the beggar sitting at the gate called Beautiful. You know what's astounding about that? It's a little tiny detail, but it's, it's, it's astounding. I can see it. I can almost understand if a thousand miles away there's a poor person, but we're talking about a person sitting on God's porch, his temple, and he's a beggar. He's sitting right there on the temple. That is inexcusable. The heart of the law was taking care of one another. That was the heart. All Jesus had to do, all he had to do when the Pharisees attacked him was point to the poor person. There's not a thing they could say because it was a clear evidence that they weren't obeying the law. What's the heart of the law? How did Jesus sum it up? Love God and love each other. And if we fulfill that, there won't be a poor person in our group. Everybody will be taken care of. So listen to these words. This is post-exile, and they're coming back. I'm jumping into the middle of Malachi 3, verse 5. So I will come to put you on trial. That's God. I'm going to come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who lie to protect themselves against others, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, those who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice, but do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. I, the Lord, do not change. Don't we praise God for that? He's not abusive. He is consistent. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, Jacob, are not destroyed. 
You should be. I had a friend recently who many, many years ago was a very, very big leader, sinned terribly, lost all of his ministry, all of his prestige. He's now living in another country in a village in the backwaters doing a little tiny ministry. And I just said to him, I said, God didn't forget you. And he said, no, he should. He should have, but he didn't. And he's doing ministry. I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your descendants, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we supposed to return? Remember, they're poor people now living back in the land. They have very little of the glory that they had before. Life is not good for them. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? And he says, in tithes and offerings. Now, you already failed the first test on tithes. Remember that? You're in good company. They did too. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Boy, does that sound like 2 Corinthians? We have a God who loves to bless. He just loves to bless. That's not the issue. Now, I'm going to go back to Deuteronomy chapter 26. We're on this side of the Jordan, getting ready to cross into the uh, promised land, this side of the Red Sea, getting ready to cross over into the promised land. And Moses is giving them uh, his final words, and he's reminding them of the law that they had to keep once they get into the land. And listen to what he says about this whole process of giving. When you have finished setting aside a tenth of all your produce in the third year, the year of the tithe, you shall give it to the Levite, the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that they may eat in your towns and be satisfied. Now we're getting to one of the core reasons why we give and why God blesses some of us to take care of those that aren't blessed. Right there. That's why. We do it through lots of ways. You give to your church. You give to organizations. You give to our benevolence fund. Our benevolence fund is not a a, a budgeted fund. It purely relies on dollars. We give anywhere from 30 to 80,000, depending on how much you give to the benevolence fund. That's where we care for a lot of our poor. You want some place to give? Give it to that. It's a great fund. But this we're beginning to learn that there's an inseparable connection between our giving and our faith because the world looks at us and this is where we're different than the world. When we give and we take care of our own, who would not want to be a part of that? Who would not want to be a part of that? Well, it goes even deeper. Still not that simple. There's a little book by Randy Alcorn called The Treasure Principle. If you've not read it, I would encourage you to do it. There's a few, unless the first service bottom. Bottom all, there's a few out there on the, on the book stand. It's worth reading. Um, I'm going to read just a section of it. He's talking about uh, Christ's teaching. 15% of everything Christ said relates to the topic of money and possessions or stewardship. By the way, stewardship in the Bible is the second most talked about topic behind love. 15% of everything Christ said relates to this topic more than his teachings on heaven and hell combined. 
Why did Jesus put such an emphasis on money and possessions? Because there is a fundamental connection between our spiritual lives and how we think about and handle money. They're inseparable. We may try to divorce our faith and our finances, but God sees them as inescapable. He won't let you do that. He sees them as inseparable. Years ago, I came to this realization on an airplane while reading Luke chapter 3. In Luke 3, John the Baptist is preaching to crowds of people who've gathered to hear him and be baptized. Three different groups ask him what they should do to bear the fruit of repentance. Remember John the Baptist was going through, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Stop, you're sinning and repent, right? So three different groups ask them what they should do. Here's his answers. Verse 11, everyone should share clothes and food with the poor. Do you think this is important to God? Everywhere we turn, we see it. Verse 13, the second one, tax collectors shouldn't pocket extra money. They shouldn't. You see, the tax collectors were given a bill by the Roman Empire. You have to collect so much money, you can collect as much as you want above that. That's yours, you get to keep it. Don't do that, he said. Verse 14, soldiers should be content with their wages and not extort money. Each answer relates to money and possessions, but no one asked John about that. They asked him, what do we do to repent, to receive the kingdom? And every answer he gave was about money and possessions. They asked what they should do to demonstrate the fruit of spiritual transformation. So why did John talk about these other things? Or why didn't he talk about other things? Sitting there on that airplane, I realized that our approach to money and possessions isn't just important. It is the core of our spiritual life. The way we handle our money and possessions is the core of our spiritual life. When we get to communion, we're going to see that generosity and sacrifice was what motivated God to not destroy us. That should be our core as well. It's of such a high priority to God that John the Baptist couldn't talk about spirituality without talking about how to handle money and possessions. The same thing began to jump out at me in other passages. Zacchaeus said, Look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. You see, Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and so he's one of the people that everybody despises. Nobody likes the IRS, right? I don't like them. I went through a full audit last fall. I asked Mark, is it a sin to hate the IRS? <laughs> okay. And he's walking down the street, and, and Zacchaeus is a short guy, so he climbs up in the tree to see Jesus. And Jesus, of all the people in the crowd, he picks out this guy and says, hey, come down, I'm going to eat lunch at your house today. He didn't say a word about his sinfulness. He walked in and had lunch, and Zacchaeus, because he's in the presence of the Lord, He said, I give half my possessions to the poor and whatever I've extorted, I'm going to pay back four times. What was Jesus' response, Luke 19? Today, salvation has come to this house. It's a great passage. Zacchaeus' radical new approach to money proved that his heart had been transformed. How you spend your money talks about how transformed your heart is. The poor widow steps off the pages of Scripture by giving two small coins. Jesus praised her in Mark 12. She's out of her poverty, put in everything. The Pharisees are putting money in there and making sure everybody could see it, you know? And he said they gave it out of their wealth. She just walked in and put in two coins, but that's all she had. 
She gave out of her poverty. In stark contrast, Jesus spoke of a rich man who spent all his wealth on himself. He planned to tear down his barns and build larger ones, storing up for himself so he could retire early and take life easy. God called him a fool. Luke 12. This very night, he says, your life will be demanded of you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? Who will get it? The greatest indictment against him and the proof of his spiritual condition is that he was rich toward himself, but not rich toward God. Now listen to that. It doesn't say, he doesn't say, Alcorn's not saying the greatest indictment against him is that he's rich. Wealth is a sign of blessing. Greed is a statement of the heart. Separate the two. Don't listen to our popular culture. Don't feel guilty because you're wealthy. If you're greedy, you can feel guilty about that. The proof of his spiritual condition is that he was rich toward himself, not God. So when a rich young man pressed Jesus about how to gain eternal life, Jesus told him, sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll have treasure of heaven. Then come follow me, Matthew 19. The man was obsessed with earthly treasures. Jesus called him to something higher, heavenly treasures. Jesus knew that money and possessions were the man's God. He realized that the man wouldn't serve God unless he dethroned his money idol. But the seeker considered the price too great, and sadly he walked away. You see, that's a principle in giving. Where your heart is, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. If you invest all of it into material possessions, that's where you're going to find your heart. Right there. And I'm not saying you should go all the way. You see, a person who gives 100% to the Lord may have other issues. For instance, they're not taking care of their family. By the same token, a person who gives zero to the Lord doesn't understand spirituality. Where you fit in between that, that's up to you. That's a matter of personal conscience with the Holy Spirit. You have to figure it out. I have in your bulletins a little white piece of paper. You can read it. I'm going to ask you to do something with it in just a minute. The first, I want to read the rest of 2 Corinthians, the part I didn't read. I read the part about God loves a cheerful giver, which you've all heard. But listen to what Paul does with it after this. <clears throat> so I just read where you will be enriched in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Here's the very next verse. This service that you perform, this generosity that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the Lord's people, that's one of its purposes. God blesses us so we can be a blessing to others. But it is also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. You see, if I am in trouble financially, and I know that you can help me and you don't, division results. And hurt results. But if on the other hand, I'm in trouble and you come running to help me, thanksgiving is the natural byproduct. Unity just occurs. Joy overflows. Joy overflows. A few years ago, Nancy and I and another couple 
Um, I use myself as an example often. We had a, a missionary, inner city missionary in Denver, single mom, who didn't have a lot of money, and her refrigerator died, and when she got home, all of her food had spoiled. So we called up our other friends and said, did you hear about that? Yeah, you want to take care of it? We now bought our new fridge and filled it with food. We just watched her cry with joy. Just the joy overflowed. It, automatic, it was automatic. Unity was there. So, because of this service by which you have proved yourselves... Ooh, listen to these words. Because of this generosity by which you prove your faith. Give me your checkbook and I can tell you you, how deep your faith is. That's what he's saying here. Because of this generosity by which you have proved yourself, others will praise God for your obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ. You see... Uh, when you give, you are saying to the world, my faith is real. It's real. That's what you're saying. And for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers, the people that you're helping, for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. You see, this is the answer to the problem of how the poor feel about the rich. If the rich do not take care of the poor, you hurt them and you increase their hostility. But when you move into their lives and you start taking care of them, they begin to appreciate you and they begin to see God's grace in new and fresh ways. This is the answer that breaks down that barrier. How much do you own? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That's how much you own. Don't be fooled. You're a steward. You're a steward. Do you believe that? You own nothing. In their prayers, the ones who you're blessing, in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. I am so blessed by you. Most of you are wealthier than I am, and you bless my family. And it makes me just praise God that you're wealthy. I love wealthy Christians. I struggle with greedy Christians, but I love wealthy, generous Christians. Every time I send one email out that I'm going to Mozambique, I have people that just fill up the coffer so I can go. I couldn't afford to do this without you. People make that happen. And several of you have had that experience. And then he closes with this. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. How much is enough? You should answer that. You should ask that question every year. How much is enough? Figure out what that is and then everything beyond that, use it and bless people with it. Okay, I'm going to kind of close with this. This in a letter. This is uh, in the back of his book. He gives six what he calls treasure principles. These are his six keys to remember. Number one, God owns everything. I am his manager. 
Whatever I have, it belongs to the Lord. Number two, my heart always goes where I put God's money. My heart always goes where I put his money. Number three, heaven, not earth, is my home. Hebrews says we are citizens of a better country, a heavenly one. We long for this better country. Number four, I'm not going to live for the present. I'm going to live for eternity of which I'm already a part of right now. Number five, this is an important one. Giving is the only antidote to materialism. You want to you get rid of that greed? Start giving, and the greed will disappear. Finally, God prospers me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. God prospers me. He blesses me not to raise my standard of living, but to raise my standard of giving. How much is enough? Some of you know Warren Buffett, one of the wealthiest men in the world. He and Bill and Melissa Gates got together and started challenging the wealthiest Americans in the country to start giving away at least 50% of their wealth. You can find their pledges on givingpledge.org. Givingpledge.org. It's a public statement of all their letters. It's fascinating to read these. Some are motivated for spiritual reasons. Other ones are motivated just for altruism. This is uh, Warren Buffett's part of his. My philanthropic pledge. In 2006, I made a commitment to gradually give all of my Berkshire Hathaway stock to philanthropic foundations. I couldn't be happier with that decision. Now, Bill and Melissa Gates and I are asking hundreds of rich Americans to pledge at least 50% of their wealth to charity. So I think it is fitting that I reiterate my intentions and explain the thinking that lies behind them. First, my pledge. More than 99% of my wealth will go to philanthropic organizations during my lifetime or at death. Measured by dollars, this commitment is huge. In a comparative sense, though, there are many individuals who give more than me every day. We're talking billions of dollars. Billions of dollars. When he gets to the end, if you read the whole thing, he talks about his family's discussion and how they decided to make this decision. Here's how he concludes. The reaction of my family and me to our extraordinary good fortune is not guilt, but rather gratitude. Isn't that great? He's a billionaire. And he said, my reaction is not guilt, but rather gratitude. Were we to use more than 1% of my stock or wealth on ourselves, neither our happiness nor our well-being would be enhanced. In contrast, that remaining 99% can have a huge effect on the health and welfare of others. That reality sets an obvious course for me and my family. Keep all we can conceivably need and distribute the rest to society for its needs. That is my pledge. You want to read some interesting reading? Reading, go read those letters of what they decided to do. Living a life of simplicity, all that means is asking the question, how much is enough? And everything above that, thank you, Lord, for taking care of my needs. Everything above that, I'm going to help other people with their needs. That's what that means. Now, 
some of you are well down the road in thinking about this. And what this is, I'm just going to ask you to make a commitment. Here it is. The ushers are going to come forward and we're going to take an offering. Why do we call it an offering? Same as a sacrifice. What does the Bible say? You take the first fruits, not the last fruits. You give off the top first. It's called a, it's called a sacrifice, an offering. And so I'm going to ask you to t- take a moment and pray about making this your commitment. My commitment to God is to can you continue to strive a life, to live a simpler lifestyle, and to increasingly share the material blessings he has given me with others. Now, others of you are way back on that spectrum. This may be the first time you've heard it. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. Take this home, put it in your pocket, and start thinking about it and praying about it. Because your spiritual journey is inseparably connected to what you do with the things God blesses you with. And if you really want to enjoy the deepest gratitude, the deepest joy, the deepest fulfillment, then start using what God has given you for others. Just take a step, just a step, and use it. So I'm going to give you just a second right now just to pause and meditate with the Lord and think about that before you put that in the offering basket. Thank you, Lord, for blessing us. Thank you for making it possible for us to bless others, to experience the same joy that you must have felt toward us by sending your Son. His name we pray. Amen.